0: I'm proud of myself this week, and ashamed, last month, the Tavistock Gender Clinic in the UK, one of the biggest, most visible, most controversial, most influential centres of youth gender care, was shut down after an inquiry found that it was not serving the interests of young people who had gender dysphoria, who believed that they were trans or were indeed trans. And now there's a lawsuit from many families against uh, the Tavistock Gender Clinic. And this has had ripple effects around the world, including in Australia. Um, When I saw that news, I thought I'd pitch it on my radio show. I do a three-hour radio show on ABC Radio Sydney every day, every weekday. And we sort of, it came up and we couldn't quite find a place for it on the day that it happened. And I felt a bit weird because nobody else was, doing the story, and nobody else even seemed to be mentioning the story. Maybe I was crazy, maybe I thought this was more important than it was, maybe I'm just too online, maybe I'll be perceived as being sort of interested in ginning up hatred against trans people or something, but I betrayed that little part of my intellectual curiosity, that little part of my creative soul that called me to do the story and that said, look, don't worry about the culture war critics and don't worry about whether there are wokesters or whether there are crusty old conservatives who actually are transphobes. Just get your hands dirty by actually wrestling with this because it is reasonably important. We're We're at a juncture in culture where we're reevaluating what gender means we're reevaluating whether or not there's any connection between sex and gender if so is that connection inexorable you know does it does the the things that are between your legs really turn you into a boy or a girl or a man or a woman or is it just is that just a probabilistic thing is it just that mostly that's the case what exactly are we dealing with when we're dealing with a 14-year-old girl who claims that she's a boy is that different from the two-year-old who insists that they are the opposite sex and they always have been? It seems clear to me that there's something going on in the sort of gender non-binary space where university students are terribly interested in playing around with performative aspects of expressing themselves in gender creative ways. That that is different from traditional transgenderism, where you know clearly from the the as the youngest possible age you have an infant. Who identifies as being born into the wrong body? That strikes me as a clear-cut case of a medical condition that we need to support and we need to affirm their new identity. And anyone who who denies that, I think, basically is a transphobe. Um, although phobe isn't quite right; it's not that they're afraid of them, but you understand what I mean. Uh, you know, that's just become the shorthand way of saying somebody who doesn't believe that trans uh, the transgender people should have the same rights as the rest of us. Um, But I do think there's something interesting at the edges, clearly, where we're playing around with performative non-binary gender roles. And what had been happening in the UK was that anything that wasn't considered gender-affirming care was pretty much forbidden. And gender-affirming care means that a physician or a therapist is essentially required to affirm the new gender or the claimed gender of the young person. And if they start to interrogate whether or not there are other things going on, whether there might be anxiety or depression or social isolation, whether this person might be on the spectrum, whether there might be other needs that this infant has or this adolescent has, that is considered to be a form of deaffirming care, a way of denying the young person's true gender identity. And is likened to sort of convert gay conversion therapy from the bad old days of the nineteen seventies or fifties or well for some people even eighties or nineties or more recent, where people would be discouraged from being gay I mean there are a few things that are wrong with that analogy firstly, being gay is completely as far as we are aware innate there's not a great deal that a that a that a really flaming gay person can do to change who their loins and their hearts are attracted to. Whereas, and that maybe that clearly is true for some cohort of transgender people, but it can't be true of every single person who claims to be non-binary or who claims to uh, be playing in the the gender fluid space. Um, there is more control there, and th- so there probably is more nudging that can be going on. And transgender ideas are also more tight, you know, more frequently correlated with other psychological conditions. It's clear that. People who are on the spectrum, uh, people living with autism, are much more likely to be trans. Um, Is this something that's connected to to their condition, to their mind? Or is it possible that if you're an adolescent girl who has internalized sexism and feels bad about herself and maybe is queer, maybe is in the closet, maybe is a lesbian and you're not very popular at school because you don't have all the, you're not charming, you don't have all the social cues and being on the spectrum makes it difficult for you and you're undiagnosed on the spectrum so you're not getting all the help that you might need. Is it conceivable that if transgender is the cool thing that maybe you might be more likely to present as non-binary or to present as a trans boy? I don't know. But if that's a conceivable option, then it's presumably an option that, a therapist or a physician should be able to gently explore without being pilloried as being a conversion therapist. So anyway, these were all the things going through my mind as I'm thinking, do we talk about this? How do we talk about it? Who do we talk to that doesn't make us doing the Tavistock story seem like we're jumping on some kind of cultural bandwagon? And I kick myself for not having the guts to actually push for it and figure it out. Anyway, a couple of weeks like go by, and this show called Media Watch, which is basically an auditor show of all of the media in Australia. It's only fifteen minutes a week, but they pick out some of the most egregious examples of media misdeeds in a very academic and professorial sort of way, and uh, and they highlight them. Uh, they did a bit of an audit of the ABC the public broadcaster for which I work, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And as far as they could tell, not a single radio show or news article or TV show or news bulletin covered the closure of one of the world's biggest and most important youth gender care clinics. And when they put in a quest when they questioned uh, ABC News about this, they got back a statement saying, well, uh, that's in the UK. And uh, so when we m- think that there's something of relevance to the Australian situation, we'll report on that. And Paul Barry, who is the host of Media Watch, I think quite rightly said, if you don't think that it has any relevance to the Australian conversation, then surely it deserves one article out of the many hundreds or thousands that the ABC is writing, one article explaining why, explaining why, okay, this is happening over there, but it's not relevant here because our standards are different, so this is the way that it works here, and that's the way that it worked over there, and this is what was wrong with it. And I completely shared that critique, and it made me come back to the story. And so during the most listened to half hour of my show, which is between 3 and 3.30 in the afternoon, as Sydney siders are picking up their kids and beginning the early commute home from work, I did speak with the head of the Australian psychological, psychologist's body, <clears throat> excuse me, that believes that we need a more holistic approach towards treating trans- transgenderism and gender dysphoria in young people. Uh, that we need to be able to explore all avenues of possible psychological conditions that they might be uh, going through. And this is a person who is regarded as, needless to say, a transphobe by some of the more extreme members of the transgender lobby. And I did this whole half hour and yes, I got pushback on social media. Yes, I was called all of the usual names. Yes, the segment was poured over with a fine toothed comb and the most minuscule errors or omissions or whatever were highlighted and thrown back in my face in a way that no other segment I've ever done gets that kind of scrutiny. But you know what? The sky didn't fall in. And I'm not fired yet. So it's an encouragement. And it's a reminder. And it's a check. Check yourself. Check your privilege. Josh, it's a check that if I have an instinct to do something, if you have an instinct to do something, if you have an instinct that something's important and something's worth saying, if someone says something in a social environment and you think that's not quite right, but mm, it's probably not worth pursuing, maybe it is. Don't be dogged. Don't be unpleasant. Be generous to them, but maybe it is. Maybe it is worth having a conversation about. A conversation that might be tricky, a conversation that might be sensitive, a conversation that might need to be handled gently, but a conversation that because you know in your gut needs to be said, maybe is important and maybe will lead somewhere fruitful, even if that conversation is, as the best ones always are, uncomfortable. Today on the show, Sammy Shah, one of Australia's most interesting and celebrated comedians and writers. He's been profiled abroad in places like the New York Times. He's had an Australian story made about him, which is an iconic Australian documentary profile television show. Uh, in which they pick one extremely interesting Australian and profile them each week. He was the uh, the host, the radio host of ABC Radio Melbourne, which is the Melbourne counterpart of the station that I work for in Sydney for a couple of years. You'll hear him talking about what an unpleasant experience he found that to to be. His show was somewhat ill fated, and he was uh, he was he was booted, but not through any fault of his own, really. I mean, he's quite uh, a thoughtful, insightful and funny bloke. He, uh, he's he been heard on BBC Radio 4 in the UK. In the UK, he's been a panellist on QI, that wonderful show that Stephen Fry hosts. He's He's got an autobiography, which is called I Migrant, get it, Immigrant, I, Im- immig- I Immigrant, uh, which has been nominated for a couple of awards, the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, the Russell Prize for Human Writing. He does a weekly podcast called Sammy Says, And the reason this conversation came about is because of the tragedy of Salman Rushdie being attacked. And I was despondent about that and despondent about much of the response to it. There were a few heartening glimmers. The French president did a great Twitter thread, which I thought put it in the appropriate context of standing up for free speech and not just saying, oh, this was a cowardly attack and we condemn violence, but really articulating why it's important to cherish people who buck the trend. I mean, my basic sense about people like Rushdie is I really just don't want to live in a world where people can't push boundaries, where people can't be audacious and mock things and test the limits and and push against boundaries and, and play with ideas in a free intellectual space. I mean, the idea that someone who is taking all of these strands of beautiful fiber from around the world, from all of these different cultures that he's come from, that he's experienced from South Asia and from the UK, and that he can weave these into narratives and create imaginative castles in the sky and explore them and walk through them and push through the edges of his imagination, that 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 experience would have to be curtailed because some people are going to get offended, so offended about the book that was written thousands of years ago by their special invisible cosmic god friend, that they're going to kill him, they're going to kill him for being imaginative in ways that create them, that create a fence for them. I mean, it's so obviously noxious to me. It so obviously runs counter to everything that we should cherish in flourishing liberal democratic societies. It should be so obvious. That the way that you create a vibrant pluralistic society is the moment someone says they're offended, you go, okay, well, I'm still waiting for an argument. I'm still waiting for you to make a point. So what? I can be offended. We can all be offended. Whoop de doo. Go on, go on your way. Go off and be offended. Put the fucking knife down and go and be offended by yourself, or bring me something constructive. You know, tell me why you're offended, or tell me why it's wrong, why these are, these are ideas that we shouldn't countenance. Use an argument, not a knife. And so anyway, I was sort of venting about some of this on Twitter, and I came across uh, one interesting conversation on BBC's Newsnight, in which Kenan Malik, who's a, a writer, a thinker, he's of South Asian descent himself, was saying that you wouldn't even get a publisher to publish the Satanic Verses today. We've come so far since that controversy. We've been, been so cowed by jihadism and so confused about in the conversation around Islamophobia, not wanting to seem like we're Islamophobes by being critical of Islam at all. It's a religion of peace. It's a religion of peace. It's a religion of peace, we keep saying to ourselves. And anyway, take a listen. I'll actually play this for you. Instead of describing what this is, I'll just let you hear it. The first voice you hear is the BBC interviewer. Uh, the second voice is the uh, writer, lecturer, broadcaster, columnist, Kenan Malik. He surely had no idea uh, what he would
1: unleash by, by publishing that book. Kenan, do you, think, do you think that book would be published today? Uh, no, it wouldn't. Um, Hanif Qureshi, the novelist, a friend of Salman Rushdie's, he's made the point that it wouldn't even be written today, let alone be published. Um, And I think the boundaries, the boundaries of free speech, the boundaries of um, restrictions on uh, offence, on blasphemy, have gone much tighter over the past 30, 35 years, partly as a response to um, the Rushdie affair. And it's ironic that, you know, in some ways, the critics of Rushdie, they won the battle, they lost the battle, but they won the war. In a sense, they, they lost the battle because the, uh, the, the, the novel, the Satanic verses, continues to be published. But they won the war in the sense that the argument at the heart of their, their um, claim, that it is wrong to give offence to certain people, certain groups, certain religions and so on, has become much more mainstream. And to a, to a degree, you could say that many societies have internalised the fatwa um, and it's, and uh, introduce a, a, a form of self censorship in, in, the, in the way um, we talk about um, each other.
0: So I saw that, and that rang true to me. And I also saw some articles written about the attack on Rashti, one of which was from the BBC. And it said that the suspect in his stabbing, Hadi Matar, had no known motive. No known motive, the BBC said. So I tweeted, The BBC reports that the suspect in Salman Rushdie's stabbing Hadi Matar had no known motive. I said, No mainstream publisher would touch the satanic verses today. And worse, 33 years on, we're more timid than ever in speaking plainly about jihadism. The Ayatollah would be pleased. I tweeted. Sami Shah tweeted back to me, and said, I don't know if that's true at all. I think there's a lot to be said for the caustic influence of the fatwa and extremism, but you might be seeing political correctness gone mad ghosts where there aren't any. Lots of books by all kinds of authors still get published, Sammy tweeted. And I said, I'm mainly parroting Ken and Malik on this. I don't know enough about the contemporary publishing industry to be sure, but in the fields I do know, like broadcasting, the cowardice around having honest conversations about Islamism is staggering. And I said, you're one of the few in Australia who does, pointing to Sammy. And I then tweeted, of course, there's plenty of ignorant anti-Muslim nonsense on the populist right, but that's not what I'm suggesting we need more of. And it's partly fueled, I strongly suspect, by a frustration with the obfuscations of the mainstream media elite. So then I sent a DM to Sami and said, why don't we flesh this out on a podcast? And this is that podcast. I should say that Sammy has uh, one of the best uh, explorations of cancel culture that I have ever heard. He did it for Earshot, which is a show on Radio National, or as it's called now, ABC, RN, in 2019. It's called Shut Up, A Free Speech Investigation. It's a multi-part podcast. If you just Google Shut Up, A Free Speech Investigation, or Shut Up, Earshot, RN, Sammy Shah, you will get it. It's absolutely fantastic and it's and it's precisely because Sammy is so clear-headed with one foot in Pakistan and one foot in the West in Australia that I wanted to talk to him about uh about this. Uh please enjoy the uh, this conversation with the one and only Sammy Shah. Um, so what's the balance between academia and other pursuits for you?
2: I mean, it basically like the academia is just to pay the bills. It's not something that I'm like um, in in love with. I love teaching. I I only started doing it two years ago, and I really enjoy that. I briefly tried a PhD, and I dropped out right away. Um, <laughs> I remembered, <laughs> yeah, I remembered very quickly that I always hated studying. I don't know why I thought this would be a good idea. um But uh, yeah, so I like I teach four days a week, and then. The idea is that I spend the rest of the time writing or doing comedy. But uh, sometimes mm. you just get so tired, you really don't get around to that part.
0: Yeah. Did you enjoy Rydia?
2: Um. Okay. I mean... Look, working for the ABC was, I think I can safely say, the worst professional experience of my entire <laughs> life. And I'm someone who's worked in Pakistan extensively in advertising and news. So, two notoriously hard fields to survive in. Um, some of my, uh, honestly, God, like I've never been treated as unprofessionally or as poorly as I was by ABC management. Um, so, that didn't leave a good taste in my mouth. I enjoyed doing radio because I enjoyed talking to people. Like I, I really like that part of it. So, yeah, I enjoyed that. But I also hate waking up early in the morning. Um, and I didn't Not like
0: right that. If you a shuttle where you have to be on the air at five thirty or six,
2: yeah, 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 it's too brutal to wake up at like four. I think three thirty a.m. was when I had my alarm would go off, and I'd question my life choices quite yeah. strongly.
0: Yeah, I mean that's pretty late for a breakfast uh, radio host. I mean three thirty is leisurely. You know, yeah, so, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Alan
0: Jones would have been getting up at, at two forty five or something.
2: Yeah, and that, and, and you kind of understand why Alan Jones is as angry at the world as he is. Like, honestly, <laughs> another another year of Breakfast Radio, and I'd be ranting about immigrants and Lebanese people as it's well. Quite like, possible. it was, I,
0: see, I see it in you know. your future, Sammy. Yeah, this is uh, you you can you. <laughs> a shock, a shock jock, an anti COVID vaccine uh, shock jock. <laughs> uh, I look forward to it. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what and what motive? What are you most interested in, if not ranting against the world? What are the pursuits that most fascinate you?
2: Um, honestly for me it's uh it comes down to two things, which is uh writing and comedy. Um and uh, comedy is, is basically something that I've always loved doing. Um and I continue to do stand up comedy all the time. Uh my career as a stand up comedian kinda took a massive hit um because of the blasphemy stuff a few years ago. Um Tell and- us about which- that. What was that? So basically, um, in 2016, I, or to, uh, I think 2016, end of 2016, I wrote a book called The Islamic Republic of Australia. It was based off a documentary series I had done for ABC Radio National. Um, it was a five-part series called, with the same name. And it was basically me kind of exploring what the Muslim communities in Australia is like um, and the different nuances of that and and trying to navigate my own place as a person from Pakistan, which is a Muslim country. Grew up in a Muslim environment, came to Australia to, in some ways, get away from a lot of the more oppressive aspects of religion and and Islam in particular. And then, um, you know, over here, while identifying as an atheist... Still sad, wanted to have some understanding of what the world around me is like when it comes to Muslims and Islam and and Islamophobia and where I stand on those issues. So it's like um, the way I kind of do these documentaries for Radio National every few years is like I pick a topic that I want to explore and then I convince the taxpayer money to be spent on that. Um, and so I kind of turned that into a book. And in it, you know, I talk about my, uh, my atheism, my apostasy, which is when you leave Islam, you become an atheist or an apostate. And, Muslims largely uh, frown on that. And uh, by frown on that, I mean, like, you know, they'll kill you for it. But, um,
0: uh, <laughs> not all Muslims. Not all yeah, yeah, yeah. Muslims. not all Muslims. You're of all Muslims. of, Muslims of Muslims course. Saying. Look, I mean, if here's the thing. You wouldn't Look. even know what religion a person could be. They might exactly. be. It's a religion of peace. Yeah, of course. Jesus, of of course. Hey, beheaded or something. N- no such thing as a religion of peace. There is no religion of
2: peace in. Maybe Baha'ism. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading up tans.
0: on the the
2: um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, Uh, The book came out. And when the book came out, um, I was promoting the book. Here's the thing. No one reads books. So I figured no one cares. No one's ever going to find out about this. (laughs) But uh, the press release went out and the Daily Mail picked up the press release. And the Daily Mail does what the Daily Mail does, which is take all the nuance and subtlety out of this big exegesis that I had written on the subject and smooshed it into a headline that said, like, Sammy Shah hates Islam and mm-hmm. left it to move to Australia or some shit like that. Um, and that made its way to Pakistan and all of a sudden and to the rest of the Muslim world. And all of a sudden, um, the joke I used to do is it turns out Muslims believe in three things, uh, the Quran. Which is the word of Allah, um, the Hadith, which is the life and the words of the Holy Prophet, and the Daily Mail. Um, and <laughs> so, I basically started getting death threats, like you wouldn't believe, um, just horrific kind of abuse. And my family, at one point, you know, I was worried about their safety. My own safety as well. I had relatives who disowned me. Uh, I, a few days later, I was supposed to record my uh, first ever, you know, for ABC TV comedy show. I had booked a studio. ABC gave me a budget. There's going to be a live audience. It's going to be amazing. I had to cancel that because of security threats. I basically stopped doing comedy for six months. And that was at the point when my career was just, you know, when you kind of hit that moment. It happens to all of us in these fields yeah. where you, you, you hit the tipping point. We just break through into the big mainstream. Mm, I had to pull away from that. I had to pull away from that very, very sharply. And so, and then the momentum kind of passes you by. It's very hard to kind of rebuild that again. And so, yeah, I've never really recovered from that in my comedy career in terms of having like, you know, being a a more prominent comedian. But I still love doing comedy for itself. So I've kind of, uh, I just do it now because I love doing it, but I don't think i you know, you're not going to see a Netflix special ever. I don't think.
0: Does it change what you can joke about?
2: Um... It, no, not really. Because for me, the thing was, I, I'm obscure. Like, honestly, the, that, that book stuff
0: in the Daily Mail. Pick well, you're up was obscure probably... when the book happened as well. Like, uh, you know, uh, right, I don't exactly. think obscurity has ever prevented someone from blowing up uh, into a, a controversy.
2: And blowing up, I think, is a very, very apt word. <laughs> there as well. I mean, around the time that the book came out, uh, because the book had come out, the, the uh, I think the World Atheist Association or something like that, they were having an event in Melbourne where it was going to be me and Salman Rushdie in conversation. It was some going to be something that I, I, like, I was so excited about because I, I worship his writing. And um, it was going to be a big thing for me. And they had to cancel the event because we were getting so many death threats between him and myself that they were like, yeah, let's just not do it. Um, you know, so that kind of stuff really was strange to me to have to live through it. But also I'm kind of used to getting um, attacked. And I don't say this in any any way that makes it, I'm not I don't enjoy it. But I do tend to say stupid things and, and put my foot in my mouth all the time. Sometimes quite, um you in quite on purpose. But uh, I'm, you know, when I was in Pakistan, I'd pissed off uh, the wrong people many times, I'd get threats over there. And in Australia, I've gotten, you know, you don't get really death threats, but you get a lot of abuse when you're, uh, you know, a brown man on ABC radio, or when you, you know, when you piss off One Nation or, or the Liberal Party or whoever um, or, you know, or people on the left as well. So it's, uh, it's something you kind of get used to after a while. And one of the tactics you learn is I don't care. I'm just talking what I'm talking about. I don't, you know, hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble no matter what. No point. playing. Yeah, but saying. there's getting
0: in trouble and then there's fearing for your life, isn't there? Yes.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, I think, look, there was a very telling moment when I, I was kind of, I had to make a decision about this. I have family still in Pakistan, you know, my parents still live there and stuff. And I had to decide, look, this is something I can spin into and own. I mean, there are many ex-Muslims who do that as well. Sarah whoever whose work I really like uh, yeah. is one. And, um, you know, many others who talk about this quite openly and, and, and fight this fight quite well. And I wanted to do it, but uh, I had a decision to make. If I do that, my parents are no longer safe in Pakistan. And this isn't something they asked for. So I figured at that moment, you know what? not everything needs me to voice my opinion on it it's fine to step back and let other people who are more willing to sacrifice or are more capable of the sacrifice right right in my situation it's not if it is just me i'm fine with it because, but not my parents sake. so i had to kind of pull back away from some of that stuff i still do it in my stand-up but also nobody's watching me in a nightclub in melbourne at, you know uh where you get five dollar beers to come and watch comedy and no one's gonna kind of be so sure it. sammy
0: there are smartphones these days anything can go viral online if i know i know from. absolutely so why there are is people that. $5 bills into your strap? is that what you just said happens <laughs> of your, what, kind of, what kind of a comedy routine are you doing here sammy
2: <laughs> listen some people uh, call it comedy some people call it, it stripping you know
0: yeah it's uh yeah the eye of the beholder surely <laughs> yeah uh i mean this is interesting because there's a uh, it's so difficult to unpick all this. There's there's clearly mm-hmm. a a drumbeat on the right that uh, cancel culture has gone crazy and people can't say anything honest anymore. And this is often coming from people who themselves are among the most censorious people in our society and the most mm-hmm. thin-skinned whenever anybody yep. says anything, uh, you know, about, about their sacred cows. <clears throat> and uh, we can all think of examples where, Uh, right-wing nationalists have totally freaked out and uh, accused people of being uh, apostates of their own kind by being insufficient fealty to, I don't know, patriotism or to the army or to whatever, to Western culture. Um, On the other hand, that doesn't mean that everything that they say is unreasonable and that some of the problems that they're talking about aren't real. And yet I do feel that when one raises the the problem of that I perceive of there being a curtailing of what we're allowed to talk about in polite company and the way that we're allowed to talk about it, and this covers a whole bunch of culture war issues, mm. um, of which Islam is but one that has come to the fore recently because of Salman Rushdie's Rushdie stabbing. Um, a large swathe of the left says that to claim that there is any chilling of the conversation is to co-opt the talking points of these right-wing hypocrites and that, to me, just blocks the conversation off and prevents us from actually articulating what the problem is. Uh, and so we're having this conversation because you and I disagreed on on Twitter about that. Mm-hmm. What is right and what is wrong in the the claim that there is a, a chilling about uh, things like this?
2: So here's what I think. I think part of it is I think both the left and the right um, on this issue are largely disingenuous, um, or at least the cultured commentators. I think most people, the average person... You know, doesn't really give it as much uh, focus as we like to think they do. But I think the cultural commentators on this are are either grifters and and conmen, or are are just misunderstanding the reality of things. I, here's, so here's where I sit on this. Um, I do think that yes. Cancel culture is real, definitely as a problem, and I think the way it works and the reason why it's a problem is because um, when the left does it, for example, when the left says, "Hey, you know, this thing is um, racist or ableist or, or or any of the different isms or ists that the left tends to apply on things to suddenly decide that it should no longer be part of the um, the public discourse or or the or the wider world." Um, if, if the person that they're attacking is someone with means, you know, like an Andrew Bolt, like a Louis C.K. or someone like that, they can largely survive that. They might, there might be some things that they might have to lose, like in Louis C.K.'s case, for example, he lost a, a few years of his career. Andrew Bolt, for example, has, and I've interviewed Andrew um, Bolt myself for a documentary series I did. You know, his, his public safety is, is a major issue for him. He can't go out in public very mm-hmm. often and he worries about his being assaulted which has happened more than once Um, but they do survive they still have their careers, they still make work they still get paid lots of money, all of these things Um, the people who don't get that luxury are people on the lower down the rung and they're the ones who are the actual victims of cancel culture. You know, someone, like if someone tomorrow tries to cancel me, like, let's say they call up the university that I work at and they say, oh, Samisha Shah is, you know, dash, ableist or, or, or racist or whatever. Um, I'll lose my job. I don't have any other recourse. I barely make ends meet as it is. I'm done. And you see that for many other people who get canceled as well. The ones who are less economically capable of surviving it are the ones who actually suffer its consequences on an unfair level it reminds me a lot about of um uh, you know in 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 finland and stuff the side doing the thing with with um, speeding fines where it became proportionate to your income as opposed to everyone gets hit by a 250 dollars speeding fine a yeah. poor person has trouble paying it a rich person doesn't i think on the same time on the right you've got the other side which is you know you've got they've got a long history of being censorious just as much and you see it sometimes i in america for example you're seeing it right now with all the stuff they're doing in libraries where and school curriculums where they're trying to get books out of them and things like that and and not enough people i think um in the center, talk about that, for example. But, um, and you, you know, you've got uh, other people uh, saying that cancel culture and the left is destroying the world. And, you know, to quote, for example, one of your previous guests, Douglas Murray, there's a war on the West and stuff. It's all hyperbolic nonsense, which is kind of built up to sell his own products. And, and other people are just as guilty of that as well uh, i think it's both sides that's what i mean um, i do think so for example what the argument you and i got into on twitter i, mean, I wouldn't even got an argument i just had, uh, pointed out something oh, sure. i disagreed with was yeah. you'd said that you know the, uh, a book like uh, midnight children or, or satanic verses wouldn't get published today there actually are many many other books on similar topics or just as you know um i suppose uh transgressive that do still get published sometimes yes there's also um a whole lot of you know wokeism for example in the publishing industry where people will say oh jordan peterson book is coming out and our publishing house shouldn't publish it and then they'll all leave um but they'll also at the same time work for hachette which is owned by you know northrop grumman or some you know massive weapons manufacturer (laughs) so there's a a lot of yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of, like, that kind of hypocrisy in their own actions. Uh, look, but I do I mean,
0: think overall, yeah. Well, let me just jump in. I, as as I said on Twitter, I don't think that I know the publishing industry well enough to know mm-hmm. whether or not they would publish the Satanic Verses. Many people who do know the publishing industry better than I do say that there there's no way that it would be published. I can certainly say that when you look at the own voices movement in publishing, for example, which has, has been... Uh, Caught up in huge controversies, like there was that that book that Oprah promoted about the experience of uh, a Mexican uh, illegal immigrant. I shouldn't even call them illegal immigrant, undocumented mm-hmm. immigrant. I'll just call them illegal because they yeah. are technically yeah, illegal. Yeah, it's it's not a you know, it's not a not not saying that they're uh, they're the worst mm-hmm. people in the world, but they're cr- crossing without uh, without authorization. Um, and and then it, it came out that this. This 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 book was written by a white woman, and so there was huge controversy, and that ended up getting pulled. And I mean, if you look into the young adult, uh, Kat Rosenfield has done a lot of reporting on this. If you look into mm-hmm. the young adult literature space, then there really is a, 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 almost a total prohibition on people imagining worlds in the skin of other people who they aren't and you you're yes. not really allowed to write a novel anymore on in but satanic verses of, wasn't and, that you
2: have to you have to remember no, satanic verses was written by a south asian man about the south asian experience and at the time we didn't know whether he was an atheist or a muslim it seemed to be a self-identifying indian man writing uh, sorry indian muslim man it writing no, about uh, it that is
0: narrowly conceivable that he could use that as a get out of jail free card today and say that because his skin is the right color and and he comes from the right country, uh, and he's circumcised or something that that gives him the right to be able to talk about people who are, are like him. I doubt that it would cut it, but I don't know publishing well enough to to know. I find it highly improbable that, that any of the big publishing houses would take on that kind of risk in the uh, in a post Charlie Hebdo like post uh, Salman Rushdie climate. Mm-hmm. If it, it it may be true that they would, all I can say is that in the industries that I do know very well on a daily basis, like broadcasting, uh, you can be an you can be a right wing ratbag who says that uh, that Muslims are destroying the country and that they don't share our values. If you want to, and you'll probably get a job in the conservative press or writing columns in a Murdoch tabloid somewhere. Uh, and and you can be a a left-winger who insists that there is no problem with Islam at all and that Mm -hmm. Muslims are people who subscribe to a religion of peace. But it's almost impossible to actually have an honest conversation which says that Muslims as people are just like any other people and we should welcome them with open arms and understand them. And at the same time, They tend to have more culturally conservative outlooks. They tend to be more homophobic and more sexist in their arrangements. I mean, even that even the fact that I've said that. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. That could get clipped and I could almost lose my job for stating a simple fact that one can demonstrate through opinion polls. You can look at the gay marriage vote in Australia, mm-hmm. which was held in a popular referendum, and after the vote we were all expected to be surprised and and really mystified that many of the areas that voted no against gay marriage most vociferously were not these right-wing rural and regional uh, white Australian areas, but they were out of Western suburbs of the big cities, which were migrant heavy areas. Uh, you know, the it, everyone was tiptoeing and dancing and treading on eggshells so carefully because you couldn't simply state the plain fact that mm-hmm. people who have migrated from China or the Middle East are much more likely to be antithetical towards gay marriage <laughs> than the rest of the population. The boogeyman on the left is supposed to be the white straight dinosaur who rules everything. And so in our conversations on radio and in the things that we write in the in columns in newspapers, if you want to be mm. accepted in polite society in this country, then I'd take issue with your criticism of Douglas Murray as just being a huckster. He's, he may go overboard for rhetorical reasons, but he's making a point that it is very difficult to defend the West at the moment without coming across as a Western chauvinist and a defender of sexism and colonialism. It's hard to say that Western countries are worth respecting, revering, cherishing that they've accomplished something because the retort will always be, yeah, but, 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 but what about, what about, what about colonialism, indigenous peoples and so on. And there's only so much qualifying and throat clearing that you can do about all of that before you just get exhausted and you bo- and you don't bother having the conversation at all. So on questions of, you know, my concern, you mentioned Sarah Hayter there, are, mm-hmm. you know, I've done work with a lot of ex-Muslim women when I was in the United States and their voices are thoroughly drowned out by yeah, most absolutely. of the mainstream press because they're too complicated. They're talking about the ridiculousness of blasphemy. They are siding with the 15-year-old girl who might not want to wear the headscarf in the western suburbs of Sydney or Melbourne or Toronto or wherever she might be or Paris. And it, we have a tendency in the media and in elite institutions to listen to her father, who might be an imam or who might go to mosque and who claims to represent the Muslim community, but right, that person but not, might uh, be quite a sexist homophobic guy and he's mm-hmm, speaking on mm-hmm. behalf of this community and we're so terrified it's, uh, that we might sound like Islamophobes that we have to put him on a pedestal and in at the same time we're essentially betraying the individuals who are oppressed by this minority community and it's very hard to defend the rights of that as I say, either the fifteen year old girl who wants to be a feminist or the fourteen year old boy who's gay and wants to come out but lives in an incredibly homophobic sub community subculture muslim arab subculture and you it's hard to defend him without implicitly denigrating his religion and his uh you know authorities in that community, which then paints the target on your back as being an islamophobe so I don't know. You know, what world you're living in, in which it would be unproblematic for the the satanic verses to be published today. But the world that I live in is one in which not only can you not publish a book like that, but you can't even really have a conversation about that without triggering so many tripwires that it's not worth the hassle.
2: Well okay, so here's what I'd say to that first is um I mean that's what Islamic Republic of Australia was trying right It was talking about these exactly these highlighted issues that you're you're um addressing and and uh, you know in in a great deal of depth and detail about like how um Islamic communities have their own problems, how nuanced they are uh, how the, the the their their representation in media is not accurate to how they actually are how difficult it is to be a gay person in a Muslim community, how difficult it is to be a woman in in the Muslim community, the controversies around hijab and all these things. These are all things that I put in documentary, which went out on ABC Radio National. These are all things I put in a book, which was published by Harper HarperCollins. Um, it is a very, like, in and of itself, it is a very controversial book. At no point did I ever have any pushback from the publishers. The only time we had to pull it off the shelves, largely, was because of Islamic extremists sending threats and everything. So in that case, for example, you know, it becomes a thing of it's not the the censorious left, quote unquote. It's not the far right, quote unquote. It is a whole other group which we all kind of live under the threat of, which is Islamic extremist censors, um, kind of you know threatening lives and everything like that. So, I've, you know, I'm saying the point yeah, but I'm that, making about I mean, they're,
0: simil- they're, they're 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 serving similar masters, aren't they? I mean, part of the <sighs> y- you know part of the part of the problem here is that uh, I mean. Look at the original response to the fatwa, you know, to Salman Rushdie's fatwa. At the time, the Prime Minister of the UK, Margaret Thatcher, you know, expressed sympathy for Muslims who were offended by the book. John LeCarrie, yeah, the famous novelist, yep. said, uh, mm-hmm. you know, said there's no law of nature that says great religions may be insulted with impunity. Uh, the, the review in The Independent by the associate editor said that the satanic verses is no better than racist graffiti on a bus stop. Like, there was a deafening yeah, no, silence. There was, also,
2: there was also, you know, when, um, when uh, Penn International gave the award to um uh, Charlie Hebdo. There was all of these writers, you know you Diaz and everyone like that who protested it and and at the time also as someone who you know, was peripherally, peripherally involved with pen, I thought that they were making a big mistake. they were coming down on the wrong side of history. Charlie Hebdo was heroic and should have been celebrated exactly as that always um they're not the the uh, they're not the perpetrators in this they were the victims. So I don't disagree with uh, all of those things. Here's what I will say. I will say that, yes, I do still think a book like um, um, Satanic Verses would have been published because in the end, it wasn't seen as controversial until... The, and if you and if you look at a lot of the stuff that uh, happened around the time when it came out, the stuff that led to it becoming controversial, seeing it as a blasphemous book was largely down to certain sociopolitical elements in England at the time to do with the British Pakistani community and their issues that they were having them seeing that this is an attack on them and them using this and then taking it to Iran, Iran's government, then using this as a way of getting attention on themselves because that's what they love doing through all these kind of things. You know, it, 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 there's a lot of social political stuff that kind of happens around those. There's other books right now that don't get published for the same com- complicated reasons, you know, t- like books that, for example, in, especially in the YA space, which you mentioned, there's all kinds of ridiculous examples of censorship happening, all of those things. My problem with the way we talk about a lot of this stuff is and look, you you work in media, I've worked in media in the past. And, and I, I, you know, we have a fairly solid understanding of what you can and cannot say. There's many things in what you said, for example, that we can go off, branch off into different uh, details on. So firstly, for example, I would say that that is why idiots like me have been harping on for so long about having diversity in Australian media. And when people say it should be diversity of opinion, absolutely. I would argue racial diversity does provide that diversity of opinion. Cultural backgrounds do provide that diversity of opinion. When the ABC let me go, And they said, uh, the last thing the ABC management said to me was, it was too much diversity too soon because I was the only brown guy in all of the cap cities doing radio. One of the things they dosed out on was, I may be leftist, but I'm also someone who can talk about Islamic issues, Muslim communities, all of these topics. Migration, right now, you're having so many Indian migrants coming to Australia. What does that mean for cultural changes within Australia? All of these things people like me would have been qualified to have those conversations and be allowed to have those conversations in a way that sometimes people get a little bit too trepidatious or or a little worried about when, you know, quote unquote, a white guy has those conversations. There is also Not a this reason guy, why. Sammy. Sorry?
0: Not this white guy, Sammy.
2: Right, I mean, like, look. If yeah, the, one of the, the reasons does
0: have those conversations, yeah, exactly. It's, and
2: but you do really? them with nuance, and I think that's the difference. That's the reason why, for example, you now at this point in society and this point in your career, and have for a while now, have the credibility of with the audience that they will trust you when you talk on issues because they know you well enough to know that you're place your 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 questions come from a place of inquisitiveness and they come from a place of um empathetic understanding right it's not what most of the times people end up doing these things you know it, it, one of the problems i have for example with the left is when you shut if the left shuts you down from having these conversations then all the the only people left to have these are you know alan jones and, and andrew bolt and then it's not mm-hmm. a nuanced anymore. That's a huge problem as well. Now, within that, there's many other things as well. Yes, the media is bad at having a lot of nuanced conversations. That's always been the case. We keep looking towards the media, particularly the media, the way we understand it, as a place for nuance. It never was. It never will be. Newspapers aren't a place for nuance, never have been. Radio, broadcast radio is not. I did SBS Insight very recently as a show. I love SBS I like I like the people at Insight it was it was an interminable experience because what happens is they get you there they pre-interview you 10 times they make sure there's no surprises everything is pre-planned Everyone says their lines again and again to make sure that the conversation looks real. If something unscripted or unplanned happens, they edit it out. Meanwhile, you and I can have this conversation for two and a half hours on YouTube or in a podcast with nuance, with depth, with understanding. And and it's something you'll never see or hear on TV, on radio, or in any of the more traditional media. It's why Joe Rogan, people never understand that. That's why Joe Rogan is popular. Where else... Would you get a two and a half hour chat with Joe and, you know, for example, David Cho, who's one of my favorite artists, just talking about suicide for two and a half hours? You'd never get that on TV, radio, any of these things. So the nuanced conversation happening, they moved into a place where they can happen. Media was never good at it. It was always sensationalist. It was always about top line commentary shallow understanding and poor representation of facts. And, I mean, and, I'm and, not sure that the
0: media was was as bad as it is now, is it? What, what's my blind spot here? Because I think back to... I don't know an era when Dick Cavett would be smoking a cigarette on a talk show and having an hour and a half conversation I mean not with the same person but you know he'd have writers on and he'd have you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. there'd be someone playing the ivories on a piano on the stage and they'd talk about all kinds of ideas and sure the pace of the of media has grown so much faster that there is a drive towards sensationalism but even over the course of my own career I I feel like there is more uh uh, judgment people are quicker to judge people are less likely to give you the benefit of the doubt on uh, specifically on a certain number of issues these hot button culture war issues See, I, here's and what so i'd say less that people can talk about am i just missing a whole other area that was previously also have unable you to be read
2: no? um have you read much philip roth
0: no i'm sad to say that his his giant tomes still sit unread on my bookshelf okay
2: um, one of the first Philip Roth books that I ever read. Um, I'm trying to recall the name now. And they made a movie, A Human Stain, um, was the book. And the book is about a, uh, Anthony Hopkins is in the movie. But the idea was it was a a black man who had such light skin that he got into a university pretending to be a white man his whole life. And then it gets found out that he's a black man. That's one element. But the whole book itself was a, a, angry, peon, like a rant of Philip Roth against political correctness and, and, the, and, the, and the way that it had now infiltrated campuses and stuff. And the opening scene of the book is basically um, where the lecturer says there's two students from his class who are missing. They never in, attend the class. They never come to any of the lectures. So he goes, are, what are they, ghosts? Are they spooks? And then it turns out that those two students are black, And they say, well, spooks is a racist term against black people. They sue the lecturer. He has to get fired. The university kicks him out. This was early 90s. This was when I was just in college myself. The book had just come out. We were talking about political correctness going mad then. If you listen to some of the stuff that was happening around the Nixon era, they were talking about the same issues then. If you look at the, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Uh, Mark Maron, the comedian, he had uh, two comedy historians on recently who talked about how these exact same conversations were happening in comedy in the 20s and 30s in America, around the time that people are still doing blackface where they were saying, oh, it's political correctness gone mad, or you can't say anything anymore. You know, we're pushing the boundaries, all of these different things. These conversations aren't new. The, the thing that frustrates me, I th- at least I find, is, is the lack of sense of history we have around how so much of this is cyclical, and so much of this is normal, and this is how conversations actually happen. You have people on one on both sides pushing the extremes of it. You have people on the on both sides also kind of compressing all of it, and you have the people in the middle figuring out where the nuances lie and how they can have actual conversations of merit and things like that. And these things are always the same. I think in the end. Ten years from now, thirty years from now, we'll be having the exact same discussions about whatever the the normalized conversation is then. and we'll do the same thing a hundred years from now.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, to, yes, you're right that this isn't new and you're right that there are always middle-aged people whining about the things that they can't say. And, uh, you know, if you went back in time, you'd be able to hear people saying, oh, you can't even mm-hmm. slap a woman on the ass in the office anymore. You know, you can't call mm-hmm. her toots. You know, you can't wear blackface yeah. anymore or whatever it might be. But the the fact that people have always been complaining doesn't mean that every complaint now is invalid. Uh, in not the same at all. Way I'm,
2: I'm not saying that at all. Is, I,
0: I, I want to make that very clear yeah let me just finish the, the thought like uh, you know I, I hear this this often when I talk about the dangers of social media and what it's doing to our brains people will say ah oh, people were frightened when newspapers started being printed people said that radio was going to rot people's brains people said that television was going to rot our brains this is no different uh, that that doesn't hold carry water for me I mean each of these technologies has to be assessed on its own basis and it, it's possible that a new technology of of media could come along that would be egregiously bad for us. And it wouldn't be rational to say it can't be bad because people thought all these other things were bad and they're not. Uh, you know, this one actually might be. So for me in the this has always, you know, this isn't new argument. I, I try to put mm-hmm. myself in the shoes of, OK, well, then let me just try to get back to basics. And what are the principles that I believe in? And who are the people who are my heroes on those principles? And what would they say about each of the these examples? People who I regard as being somewhat timeless, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Mandela. What would they say about the people back in the 50s who were saying oh it's political correctness gone mad that i can't be casually racist anymore they would say no actually you shouldn't denigrate other races Uh, all all people are equal let's treat them on the basis of their character uh, but that's not true even even that is now now i think we're (laughs) getting now i think we're getting to the point where it's not that it's not that you're, uh, you're saying something that another person finds retrograde and therefore they are presenting an argument with you about why that should no longer be acceptable. It's that you're saying something which is actually an appeal to truth and equality and mm-hmm. the modern left has given up on the idea of equality, and wants instead identitarian tribal politics where only people who come from a particular group are allowed to talk about that group, only people who have stand you know the only people who have standing to make a criticism of a minority are people within that minority, uh, and everybody else is excluded and has to kind of think of themselves as either straight, gay, black, white, religious, not and whatever. And those—that that is a, a distinction that is antithetical to those heroes who I was talking about. It's not something the Martin Luther King would recognise as being an aspiration that, that should be sought. And secondly, the response is not to counteract, to mount arguments against the position, but to try to be punitive towards the person and either have them fired or have the book not, not published. Those are the things that I object to. So I just think, what would MLK do and... How is the person responding? Are they responding with arguments, or are they responding with essentially violence and trying to exclude the person? Those would be the two characteristics of the modern moment that I would separate as being different from those those past eras. What do you say to those?
2: Okay, so um, a bunch of different things in that. So um, I'm going to try to take them step by step. So the first is um, some of the like like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, um, uh, Nelson Mandela we also sanitize what they said and what they believe you know, like for example one of my favorite heroes obviously being a comedian george carlin right and one of the big debates that's been happening in the comedy community recently because the george carlin documentary came out was people trying to decide what side he would sit on political <laughs> yeah. and things like that yeah. because one side was there was carlin saying things like be kind be forgiving, you know, be understanding and, and and stop saying, you know, things to hurt other people for the sake of hurting other people. And then on the other side, him saying, stop policing language, stop, you know, being, you know, um, uh, censorious and things like that. So there's a debate about where where he would sit. And, and similarly, like with Martin Luther King, we have a habit of forgetting that a lot of what he said was also very radical and at the time, not liked by a lot of the white people there. Right? In 1967, he said, white Americans must recognize that justice for black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. He wasn't a person who was saying, let's gently make massage change. He no, very yeah. often spoke against moderate whites, for example, as he called them, as being massive part of the problem in a way that's very recognizable to ex-Muslims when we talk about moderate Muslims being a massive part of the problem of, of sanitizing Islam's, you know, excesses. So that's one thing. For example, Gandhi's got his own problems, you know, other than the fact that he was basically... Half the time, spent, you know, sleeping in rooms with underage girls as a way to test himself. And Nelson Mandela, despite all of those other things, was best friends with Muammar Gaddafi and was constantly overlooking Gaddafi's, you know, human rights abuses. So, yeah, this, but we're not all of these about things,
0: right? I'm talking about the, uh, what, what were they aspiring towards in their advocacy? And, and right. nothing you have said d- denies that they no, were no absolutely but. equality rather than the modern day vision of identitarian equity. I would argue, I would argue
2: that, and I don't, I'm not, this isn't me condoning um, identitarian politics, but I would argue that the motivation behind identitarian politics and the reason why it has a certain level of sympathy in my heart, at least, is is also equality and fairness the way they might be going about it is wrong and the way they might be going about it is a reaction to what came before um these things aren't easy and they're clumsy and also we do tend to you and myself for example in the media it's easier for us to focus on those fools on twitter and on social media and you know in in the public space who 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 are saying things like you know um only black people should be able to talk about black things. Only brown people should be able to talk about brown things. Which, if you, for example, go to Pakistan, most Pakistanis, most Indians won't agree with. But it'll be seven people in Australia in media who are South Asian, but also are you know self-promoting, who might say that, and they'll get all the attention. So there's. Well, all sure, but,
0: the, but we're talking their ideas are the ones that influence publishers not to publish books and influence. I you would know, also. Th- th- I, I also not think not to hire particular presenters. I also think that there
2: has been already a swing away from that. I think, um, at least in my experience and what I've seen and observed, um, it was definitely a problem, no denying, the influence that they had on corporations, on, on all of these things, up until maybe even two years ago. I think the more recent stuff, for example, Dave Chappelle, and the um, and, and you know, his pushback against some of the stuff I, you know, and how he's done it, I, I have issues with. But overall, his pushback against being, quote unquote, cancelled um, has been quite a relief for a lot of people. We're seeing the and, and Netflix taking a gamble and going, actually, we're not going to take him off the platform and saying, oh, we actually didn't lose money. So Spotify, for example, gained listeners and ton of income from all those people yelling about Joe Rogan. So a lot of corporations are now saying that, okay, we gave 1500 people on Twitter an outsized level of influence on our bottom line. That's ridiculous because it turns out that it's not worth it. And it wasn't a value. And I think you're seeing it a shift away from that. Now, I think, Pendulum swings, we're now at that point, hopefully, where the pendulum's more towards the middle than the far left or the far right. It will again swing to the far right, then again swing to the far left. But I do also think that some of the panic we have around this stuff is more, is outsized compared to the problem, this actual size of the problem.
0: Well, I, I agree that it'll swing to the right, but my concern is that, uh, that the left is doing its darndest to embolden the right and to make the right more attractive to but the
2: right, the the heart right. Who,
0: are, who are so dissatisfied with what the left is offering, which is no longer uh, a bread-and-butter vision of uplifting working people, but is now uh, a sort of Talmudic uh, reading of the tea leaves between university-educated elites mm-hmm. about exactly how they should be talking about very sensitive issues. Uh, and how they should be punishing people who who blaspheme against their their new orthodoxies that's just off-putting to people in middle australia and middle america and well, i don't think you would have-
2: okay there's two different things middle australia and middle america are very different and i think we saw that in the last election i think america at this point i th- this is my estimation sitting all the way here in australia and looking out is batshit fucking crazy and everyone over there has completely and utterly lost their minds in the extremes of where they exist.
0: Australia
2: <laughs> seems to have done a very different thing. Not we everyone. Had,
0: not all Americans. Hash not hashtag, all Americans.
2: Not Americans. I, I, look, I know a lot of... I have friends who are Americans, and I, I, I do think largely... It's a country
0: of peace. Country of peace. Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. But I do think Australia had a very different thing. We We had a... I don't even know if it was right-wing government. We had a conservative government. Um, for the last nine years. And and at a time when you might say that, oh, America has a trickle-down influence on the world, Australia chose a Labour government. And we chose a Labour government at a time when inflation is just hitting now. We're going to be in a, some really bad and dire situations. And I think even the Greens did well. And I think in the end, it's because the average Australian has gone. The things I care about are still... Um, basically the economy are still basically you know the clean water our our environment and these issues and these political parties have also seen that that's what voters care about and i i do think that in the end for example the idea that the left is this thing that only cares about identity politics i think the far left is that thing but i think the left has gotten painted as all being about this by people like rita panahi and Sky News After Dark present- presenters who would like to discredit an entire side of politics by the extremes, which is no different from saying, you know, all Muslims are terrorists or, all you know, white people are racist or whatever. I, I, um, yes, I, I'll yeah.
0: take your point on that. You're, you're absolutely right that 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 is a caricature, and uh, so I suppose when I'm talking about the left in conversations about cancel culture, I am really talking about that particular wing of extremely agitated activists who are the noisiest on social media and who mm. exert some power over corporations and uh, and you know uh, and over I think political advisors. Uh, I think you're right that the. The Labor Party, the the centre-left party in Australia, has been wise to sideline such people, and the mm-hmm. current Prime Minister, when he was running as opposition leader, ran a very bread-and-butter campaign and a very small target campaign and didn't, didn't get involved in any of that stuff. He was actually asked a gotcha question by a journalist on the campaign trail who said, how do you define a woman to try to get him tangled up in transgender, mm-hmm. uh, you know, word salads, and he said, uh, as an adult female. Uh, which is uh, you know, very straightforward and kind of uh, just cauterized the possibility of that becoming a, a an issue for him, so that was a very non woke uh, response, but I do think that there was huge exhaustion in the country towards a a, a government that had been in power for almost ten years mm-hmm. and was perceived as out of touch and a bit slimy so you can 't i mean you can 't read too much in yeah, it yeah, Americans are much more uh, extremified at the moment. Than the Australian political climate is for a whole host of reasons. I would yes, just say absolutely. That be, be careful. You know, I would just say these are we're playing with gunpowder, and just because our gunpowder hasn't blown up in our faces the way that the American gunpowder has, doesn't mean that it's not gunpowder. And we shouldn't be careful of it.
2: I would say that one place. Um is actively playing with gunpowder and i think in our case we've got the gunpowder stored away relatively safely and it could blow up still but if it blows up it'll be something that we can't really control you know like um, a spark being caused by the heat Anyway, this is going taking a metaphor way to literally Um, but but look here's the thing i i just wanted to say like look what with regards to social media and its influence, you're 100% right. I'm not disagreeing with you on the fact that social media is not like TV. It's not like newspapers. I would argue, and, and I'm not the only one, for example, and many people have argued this, that social media's impact on our society is the kind of thing we haven't seen since the printing press's impact on society. I mean, the lit- the printing press caused the Protestant Reformation, it caused all kinds of revolutions. And now social media is doing the same thing. And we saw that in the Arab Spring. We're seeing that in America right now. We're seeing that around the world in different ways. So yes, the impact and influence it has is humongous and horrific. And future generations will be looking back at this time as us trying to figure out how we allow this toxic thing to exist amongst us. Absolutely. But I, I do also think that part of the one of, you know, like you were saying, that we're pushing, the left is pushing people towards the right. I don't know about that. I think one of the reasons why, for example, this identity stuff ended up striking a chord with so many people, briefly, I do think it's over. Its influence is very limited now. I do think that those golden days of, you know, woke leftists on social media, being able to just cancel people because they got a hashtag going is largely in our rearview mirror. And I think the reason being because people do want to, in at least Western societies and Western democratic societies, they want fairness. They do want equality, and they weren't finding anything else being offered that was that was striving towards that. I do think that the left, the far left, took what was fairness and equality and tinged it too much with things like revenge, um, but they were trying to offer a solution to a problem that we still haven't figured out how to solve, but you know, it was just a bad solution.
0: I mean, one reason why you may be right. I, I mean, you're more optimistic than I am that this is in the rearview yes. <laughs> mirror.
2: Uh,
0: one reason, if it is true that it's in the in, in our rearview mirror, uh, this level of censoriousness and cancel cancellation. I mean, I fear that one reason may be because it succeeded in cowing us, and that there's just less to talk about now in terms of people who should be cancelled because people aren't having the conversations that would get them cancelled quite so much. When you said earlier that, you know, the people who get cancelled... Uh, by the the left tend to be powerful and tend to be able to withstand it. They're the Louis C.K.'s and mm-hmm. the Dave Chappelle's and the people who get cancelled by the right are, are people who are uh, are less, a- less able to withstand the cancellation. No, no,
2: I think people on the left have also cancelled people who can't withstand it. They're humongously oh, okay. so. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not okay. saying that... Yeah,
0: Either yeah. way, forget about light and right mm. and left. And I, I would just say that my concern is not that is not so much about the people who get cancelled. Those people are in a minority and there will be cases Mm. of injustice. We'll always be able to hear about the university professor who wrote a paper about how peaceful protest is better than violent protest, and then that was regarded as being a racist right. attack on Black Lives Matter riots, and therefore he was fired. We're always going to mm-hmm. be able to hear the story about the um, the academic who was in an elevator with another woman and cracked a joke that was an old 1950s sexist joke about when she asked, what floor are you going to? He said, women's lingerie. Uh, as if he was in an, old-time mm, superma- mm. an old-timey department store and was then hauled before HR for being sexist and was put on probation. We're always going to be be able to hear these. It's basically the fodder, as you say, for the right-wing machine, right, which tries to tar and, everybody on the left with, yes. with, with, with this, uh, you know, as as being this crazy. My concern is not about those particular examples. My concern is about what those examples do to the willingness that we all have to have honest, open, rambunctious conversations with each other in a big, boisterous public square ah, oh, no, no, s- towards s- the truth uh, s- by, s- <laughs> by speaking fearlessly. And if we feel too cowed about mm-hmm. these things, then our concerns fester. People in middle Australia as well as middle America feel like if at the Barbie they're not really allowed to talk about their concerns about this or that, uh, if, you know, for fear of just getting into a blinding argument with somebody who's going to willfully misrepresent them and then shout at them on social media about it and defriend them, that if you're turning up the volume on all these things, people just cut off certain areas of their mind and their soul and their heart from communication and they become more unreachable. And maybe that's a reason why people get cancelled less.
2: So, okay, here's what I I will say. The the, the key there is that thing, you you said the public sphere, right? The public space. Um, And that's where they want to have those conversations. Because I would argue that those conversations are still happening in in the place where they've always happened, which has been friends and family get together or colleagues and everyone and you discuss these things i mean there's there's that age old adage which is you know you don't discuss politics and religion at the dinner table and that exists for a reason is because people always discuss politics and religion at the dinner table it always turns ugly that's always been there it is still happening the public sphere which and i'm going to put on like the real academic loser bullshit nonsense right now but (laughs) it's basically yeah exactly it goes back to the habermasian thing right and the habermasian public sphere was basically coffee houses and it was cool because you'd go there and you'd sit down and you'd have an intellectual debate and you'd fight over ideas and then you'd go your separate ways. And if those the good ideas or the more popular ideas would end up, you know, affecting society. The one thing that Habermas didn't have to deal with was Twitter, was Facebook, was Instagram. So the public sphere is still there's two public spheres now. One is a public sphere, which is where you and I right now are having this conversation. It is an active exchange of ideas, it's a debate, and it is exactly the way humanity has always done these things. The other element on top of this, unfortunately, that neither you and I can now control, is someone can transcribe this whole thing, take portions out of context, and bung them on Twitter, and I'll get fired from my job and you get fired from your job. Therein lies the problem, right? Right? And and so... I I would argue that the conversations are still happening. They're still happening in the public sphere as it used to be, which is coffee shops and and cafes, and you know, like I still do with all my friends, like comedians and everything like that. We're always having all these ridiculous debates and arguments and things like that. The only difference is that we also feel like, hey, why can't I say this on social media? Why can't I say this on Twitter? I would argue that you probably shouldn't say anything on Twitter and on social media. And I said someone's active there all the time, way too much already. Um. Is the the public sphere still working? There's a whole other sphere which we still don't know how to contend with. Unfortunately,
0: right? I but don't then, know. Then yeah. There's, yeah, then there's this up. So I think that's a good insight uh, in the sense that perhaps there is still a robust private spe- sphere let's call the let's yes, call the portion yes. of the public sphere that is the cafe or the salon i love that i love the idea that you're still going to salons and tea houses I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like a like an 18th century dandy uh, but let's uh, so let's allow you to be uh, puffing on a hookah right in, yeah exactly in, I mean, can you imagine tea anything place? better <laughs> drinking We, we need a, to bring, a, bring a, it back uh, yeah with um with all of your colleagues and debating debating the hadith uh, and th- but so there's that, and then there's mm-hmm. this new weird thing, which is social media. Which mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I've spoken at length already on this podcast in numerous episodes about my concerns about that and and the. The, the error that we make in thinking that these platforms are neutral spaces for conversation. Without yeah, they're not it. at all. Exactly. They are tweaked toward, they are extremification machines that reward the most uh, provocative content, the content that gets the most engagement, that gets the most shares, likes, comments, uh, and so on.
2: I'll give you a perfect example of how damaging social media is, right? So, for example, um, I was getting death threats like crazy on Twitter and Facebook when when Islamic Republic came out and everything. And I reported all of them. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of death threats and actual like very detailed death threats in English, in um, Arabic, in Urdu, all these things. I reported all of them. Not one of them, not one of them resulted in a block for any of them. Right. Because the people who moderate this stuff over on Twitter, who are those minimum wage employees who have been hired to moderate this, don't know the context for those threats. They don't know when someone calls me a murtid, what exactly it is that they're accusing me of or or any of those things. And so that's the result why you have someone like Donald Trump is booted off Twitter, but Ayatollah Khamenei is not. Right, It's because these are, in the end, private corporations that do not have anything but their own American Silicon Valley kind of identity, like, a, you know, what's it called, libertarian politics in mind. And and we've fooled ourselves into thinking they're on our side. They're not. They're on the shareholder side.
0: Yes, exactly. And the, the other sphere that I would just add to your characterization mm-hmm. of the... The private conversation and then the new public sphere on social media is the media, the old school media and and public and I guess governance i would I, you could lump governance and public uh, speech from bureaucrats and 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 elected officials into perhaps the same basket. Mm-hmm. One of my big concerns is the is the impact that social media and that the atomization of society is having on our faith in institutions. And the inability of those old institutions to actually keep up with the demands of the 21st century and the requirement to be honest and frank with a populace that is increasingly difficult right. to herd and is scattering in a, in a million different directions. And the fearfulness of those institutions, of the slings and arrows that that populace can throw at it from its most extreme quarters. And my concern is that it's not enough for you to have your... Hookah bar conversation mm-hmm. and, and just not be on Twitter for a, a demos to hold together for a country and a culture mm-hmm. to succeed and flourish it has to have a minimum level of faith in the conversations that are taking place on its radio stations and television stations and talk shows and amongst its parliamentarians and yes. in that area of the media as well and my concern is the, the more bullshit we, we talk, not even bullshit we talk, the more mm-hmm. we just avoid talking about these whole areas of public life because they're too... I mean, it's like, I don't know if you saw that, you know, Media Watch, which is a, a, mm-hmm. a, sh- a show on the ABC in Australia that uh, the public broadcaster that criticizes uh, the, the media and takes sort of complaints against it, made the point that when the, the Tavistock Gender Clinic closed in... Yeah, UK, Absolutely. I saw that. Mm -hmm. uh, That uh, you know, the the public broadcaster had didn't cover it at all, at at all, and it made me feel bad because I'd I'd pitched it on my show and uh, it it just sort of slipped through the cracks and we hadn't quite found a a hole in the show to do it. Uh, But I did it uh, subsequently as a half hour conversation Mm -hmm. just about how that might impact gender uh, gender affirming care in Australia, and it made me feel terrible to have been complicit in. Uh, what can only be described as a kind of a tepid groupthink, where you know you don't have a conversation that is obviously newsworthy and intellectually yeah. interesting, because you know that you are reliably, as I was, taken out of context, accused of being uh, you know an anti-trans bigot, uh, just for for broaching the the subject. So you know, yeah, it's great that we can still argue around the Barbie. And it's terrible that we hate each other so much on Twitter and get it more extreme on Twitter. But until journalists and politicians can also talk in a fair dinkum way, which means like a blunt and open and Mm -hmm. honest way, using Aussie slang, uh, about some of these things, you're going to keep the moat between elite discourse and public opinion is going to drift ever wider. And it's... How to stitch together a society. So
2: this is why I kind of get. uh, This is why my where my frustration with our focus on um, cancel culture, left versus right, all of that stuff comes from. And 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 I'm guilty of it because uh, we just spent the last hour um, debating it, and at no point did I try bailing on that debate, right? So, um, but I think what's happening is we are getting caught up in the distraction. We are getting caught up in the convenient distraction. So, for example, the um, um, you know I read Douglas Murray's uh, book about uh, Europe, or the, war, um, the Strangers of Europe, and then oh, yeah, no. um, the more recent one, the War in the West, um, and 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 you know and and people on the left as well. have read so many of their books, like the, um, the Tanahisi Coats work and everything like that. I think what's happening is if you look at the institutions, right? So you mentioned media. The problems with media, in the end. Aren't this? The real problems with media are they saw social media's rise um, as something that affected their bottom line because the classified section disappeared when the internet came along. They fired all the qualified people, all the trained staff, all the regional reporters, all those court reporters, all of these people who did real investigative journalism, quality journalism. Because they all of a sudden decided we'd rather t- chase after clicks and do and clickbaity headlines and and do you know where the ABC and yet somehow they focus on on um, ratings as if they're going after advertising dollars even though they aren't and things like that and as a result. They became institutions that lack credibility because they did a bad job. They weren't good at the one thing we asked them to do, which is report on the news. The same thing ended up happening in politicians. Politics has lost credibility. Politicians used to be people who weren't career politicians, They went up. Look, I'm I'm obviously looking back with rose colored glasses. The reality is probably messier. But overall, you know, people who went into politics, that's why the teals have done so well this time. It's because they are people who who aren't career politicians and therefore have a level of credibility that career politicians lack now because we've seen them fail and lie, fail and lie again and again and again. The issues with universities Absolutely. Universities are full of batchet crazy 21-year-old students who are trying to get their lecturers fired um, because the lecturer said something that the university student, the woke university student, was deeply offended by. Why do they have that power, though? They have that power because universities around the world are no longer institutions of higher learning. They are real estate managers. They care about the bottom line when it comes to real estate. They don't want any controversy because they have a board of... um. People who need to get shareholders, basically, they run like private corporations. Their whole modus operandi now has to do with profit gaining, profit sharing, profit motive. And you're seeing these things happening. It's more to do with just the overall destruction of institutions, destruction, you know, as a result of... chasing the bottom line as a result of bad decision making when confronted with you know should we cut people's jobs to make more money for the shareholders or should we keep people's jobs and make mo- less money for the shareholders but hold on to our credibility there are places out there that held on to the credibility and you still see them largely surviving for that reason but overall, the things that we think are the problem in society—wokeism, far-rightism, whatever—I don't think. I think those are those are exaggerated problems, which has been my thesis kind of throughout. And I think the real problem is this stuff. Right. And the stuff. It's harder to talk about because it's more institutionalized. It's 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 not as simple a solution. And also, there's no face you can paint that you can hate. You know, at the end of the day, you can hate Murdoch. But all of the press and media around the world has done the same thing, so it's easy so to make really, a villain. Out of one
0: yeah, I mean, this is obviously a multifaceted thing, right? So there can't okay. be a single uh, a single explanation. But uh, yeah, maybe we should perceive wokeism then and uh, right wing rat rat baggery as accelerants of the factors that you're talking about. Uh, you know, they're they're a way of of twisting the dial, or, or you know, twisting the the nail in the thumb of, the, of, the, of institutions that are already mm-hmm. vulnerable because mm-hmm. of these structural reasons that you're talking about and, um, and capitalizing on that vulnerability by backing the people who work in those institutions into a corner and forcing them to parrot certain scripts, which further erodes there credibility. I mean, it can be both.
2: Yeah, exactly. It can can definitely be both. I think, yeah, you're right. Look, it's in the eye of the beholder. It's the way I see it versus the way you see it. And both of us have to do largely with our own perspectives on this. You are right. I do tend to take a more optimistic view on this stuff, which is strange when if you know me at all and you know I'm not an optimistic person, but I think I do have that kind of, it's the migrant's view. I come from a place which is so much worse, and I come to a place which is so much better. And I can see, I like to think, the cracks in a system that make it become worse, and the places where those cracks would appear, I don't think, have appeared still here. And I think overall, um, we're still heading in the right direction, and all of these things are contributing almost to us heading in the right direction rather than pulling us away from that.
0: So to loop back and close w- then mm-hmm. with the subject that we started out with, which is Islam and blasphemy and whether Rushdie would get published, um, maybe this is a, a way of, of tying together uh, the optimism versus pessimism claim. Um there was a, a film made by uh, a Shia Muslim called The Lady of Heaven. Have you heard about this? Uh, it was, uh, was no. going to be released uh, and it was pulled by British cinema chains earlier this year uh, as being blasphemous. Uh, so these Muslim filmmakers had their film cancelled in the name of protecting Muslims.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the idea of creating laws against blasphemy, this was big in the late 80s basically especially in the uk and it tied in with the anti rushdie yes. movement uh, extending blasphemy laws to protect islam so no longer would it just be against the law to uh to, to you know vilify and and speak hate speech against individuals but it would be hate speech if you vilified a religion if you blasphemed against a religion that was narrowly narrowly defeated in the mm-hmm. uk um there have been multiple cases of of especially in the UK, you know, a teacher showed his religious studies pupils cartoons of Muhammad. And uh, you know, that teacher is now still in hiding, predictably. Yep. Muslims mm-hmm. protested. There was that case in France of the school teacher being killed for showing pictures yep. of Muhammad. Um these are things that Yes, they're not the same, obviously. We can't hold this at the feet of the, of the uh, limp, tepid, effete left-wingers who insist that Islam is a religion of peace and that there's mm-hmm. nothing to, to see. Because that.
2: they're buying into a narrative that's being sold to them. And, and they're buying it in, into it for the right reasons, even though it's a bad narrative.
0: Well, hey, Hitler was buying into Nazism for the right reasons. It no, no, crazy. his reasons right. were bad. His <laughs> reasons
2: were not good. What right.
0: was, what a glorious thousand-year Reich, Sammy. I mean, everyone... No. Thinks that they're Look, doing if, right you're, if you're a, a leftist right. and,
2: and you see a minority community that's being attacked and, and yelled at and abused, then you'll go, well, I'll defend them. And then if the minority community says, actually, our religion is a religion's religion of peace, you'll go, well, okay, I can kind of see why, you know, since your minority community that's being attacked, that's something that I can also parrot that's where the problem lies is that you know the nuance isn't there because we don't know enough now people know more and i think people buy into that less but sorry continue
0: yeah uh, well i mean yes my only point about to invoke mm. hitler and i've just obviously lost the bet because you're not my point is is simply that the the person who's doing the bad thing always is mm. always motivated from their own perspective by good reasons uh that it, that just doesn't mean that they're good reasons right for of course agree um Agreed. The, uh, the so I guess my yeah my question is these things haven't gone away they're still simmering along in the background they're, they're still things that we find it very difficult to to talk about uh mm-hmm. you know without being branded as uh, as bigots and so what what gives you optimism that over the next twenty or thirty years I mean are you optimistic that over the tw- next twenty or thirty years for example specifically those kinds of incidents will decrease because I think our conception of hate speech of like uh Taking care about people's feelings, making sure that people aren't offended, making sure that we're not mm-hmm. triggering people, making sure that we're not uh, imposing a you know colonialist white heteronormative uh, standard on everybody. I think that is growing. That is still growing in popularity. I don't think we've seen the end of the. I think uh, okay. You know, I, we haven't of, seen the
2: end of that of I, people yeah.
0: being what what we regard as being bullies and. I think hmm. those Muslims who were who are protesting regard themselves as protesting bullies, as protesting representatives of blasphemous, white, colonial, patriarchal uh, stru- superstructures that have dominated the world for centuries and that are raping and pillaging uh, minority people all over the world and treating with impunity people's most sacred and cherished beliefs. And it's time for that to stop. I think that worldview is not that dissimilar from the woke worldview that is censorious and uh, yeah, and and punitive towards people who represent what they regard as being the dominant orthodoxy.
2: I mean, look, you can always have a person with a a right idea and a person with a wrong idea ending up inadvertently in the same side briefly. Or, you know, the the broken clock is right twice a day kind of a thing. Um, There's a few things. Okay, so for example, when you're talking about blasphemy laws, in Australia we still have blasphemy laws. Unfortunately, um, we need to get rid of them. They're, They're lying dormant, but they are there. The last case in the U.K. that was done on blasphemy wasn't against um, Salman Rushdie. It was against Stuart Lee, the comedian who wrote Jerry Springer, the opera, and it was brought against him by Christians because they thought that was offensive. So after uh, that, the blasphemy law was done away with.
0: Imagine um, being that humorless, that that's right. actually your case.
2: Yeah, but, you know, and that's largely why they kind of lost credibility and had that case kind of done away with. Look, I had... My friends in Pakistan, right? Who are who are it's disappointing? Like they they're so intelligent. They, one of them is an economist. One of them something else. They they are all really well educated, extremely intelligent people, and yet. When this Rushdie thing happened very recently, one of them sent me a, a meme as, as a ha argument that he thought was winning him the argument. And it said, if you criticize gay people, it's homophobia. If you criticize um, black people, it's racism. If you criticize women, it's misogyny. But if you criticize Islam, that's free speech. And yeah, he's like, he's like, oh, look at how clever this is, and I was like, you're criticizing people for who they are. Islam is not a thing that who they are. Islam is a belief system. We're not saying criticize Muslims for being Muslim. We're saying criticize Islam for being a belief system. The same way, also it not do all of those things. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So. There is like there, there's they
0: shouldn't get stabbed in the neck for doing any of those things. Yeah.
2: and yeah, exactly, and and at no point is that the 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 punishment for any of those things, and and that's why that's there lies the problem with the whole um, blasphemy law stuff. So, they that's their argument and the way they see it. And yes, you're right; they have managed to wrap, and it's you know the 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 they've wrapped blasphemy in with anti-colonialist stuff. And that's to do with the nuances of their part of the world, right? Or or, or, or places that I've come from in the past. And, and I understand, I don't agree with it. And I can see the flaws in that argument, but I know how that argument happens is because colonial history is still such a massive part of day-to-day life over there. It may not be fun for a person of European ancestry or uh, you know European descent to hear how much People in the other part of the world still hate colonial history, but it is something that people in other parts of the world do contend with sometimes. It's used as a scapegoat very often, often, but it is definitely a thing that is active in their lives and is present in their lives because it wasn't that long ago, right? My grandfather went to clubs in Karachi or in, in Mumbai, where they said, you know, no dogs and Indians allowed. So that wasn't that long ago. No. Um, and, and so these these are some of the things. Now, within that, or in the West, for example, in Australia, for example, in America, you'll have, you know, some people saying we're decolonizing everything and it's all, everything is anti-colonialist and everything is, you know all, you know, white man this and white man that and 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 there is also those elements. A lot of it is like many things these days. It is the it is the uh, the the trend. You know, it's a shorthand. Or it is just something that people can say and they think that, you know, it's a it's a coded language. You know, you say that the next guy who agrees with the same kind of um, general leftist ideology says it back to you and you both know you're on the same page. No one is actually spending the time to actually think about what any of those things mean. It was really interesting. I was at um, Splend in the Grass recently and uh, it's a whole yeah the music festival here in Australia. And they have a corner where. Instead of music, they have like intellectual conversations happening because which is just ridiculous because everyone there is on drugs anyway. And um, (laughs) and there's a whole panel discussion about the, the voice department. And every white person on the on the panel was like, "It's unbelievable. We have don't already have it, and it's a long overdue, and it's remarkable, and I can't wait to bring it in." And just to to clarify, two indigenous in
0: parliament people... is a is a proposal to mm-hmm, give indigenous to Australians a capacity to, to comment on uh, to an, ad- an mm-hmm. advisory role, a formal advisory role uh, in parliament. Yes,
2: and um, the two indigenous people on the panel both said. We're very uncomfortable with the voice to parliament because it's everyone makes it sound like the entire indigenous community of Australia is on one side of this. We're not, we're still debating it, we're not even clear about what it means and what it could entail to us regarding land rights and things like that. So, everyone's saying this is something we want, indigenous people aren't sure yet. Mm -hmm. And the funny part for me was how everyone else on that panel who was a leftist, white, woke, you know, whatever basically ignored what these two indigenous people said because they didn't know how to deal with that
0: yeah yeah they,
2: they they just they were so used to one narrative in their social circle it coming from a person who they then weren't even qualified to critique in their own heads according to their own philosophies broke them and they just mm. glossed over it and moved on mm. and that's why i think a lot of this stuff is superficial and doesn't hold up to scrutiny and will therefore fall apart because when you actually have diverse voices entering the debate and discussion, Everything changes. You're going to see the same thing in Australia now with more Indians coming to Australia, the largest cohort of migrants coming here from India. You're going to have problems we didn't even think about, like the Brahmin supremacy issue that's racking Silicon Valley will become an Indian-Australian issue. You know,
0: it's interesting. I mean, what you're basically saying is that as we actually hear more from diverse communities, we'll become less woke towards diverse communities. Yes, because we, because we see that there are
2: more nuanced
0: opinion inside. Yeah, that it doesn't exactly exactly. And this, is, this is the thing that I. I always say. I mean, anyone who ever accuses me of, of lacking a commitment to equality and justice for minorities does not understand what I'm on about. I mean, what yeah. I'm on about is criticizing a particularly blinkered, mostly white university educated elite who speaks on behalf of, uh, of mm-hmm. minorities and who thinks that they have the right to, uh, essentially dictate what other people can, can argue about. That's, you know, this is the, this is the clique who, I mean, it, it's very similar to the gay marriage thing, and we, you know, this keeps coming up about whether or not football players in Australia should be allowed to express their disapproval of homosexuals or homosexual lifestyles or gay marriage or whatever. Well, there but were one, Muslim was, football players who did that and didn't get into trouble. Why not? Why not would they? Because we're afraid of being Islamophobic, right? Yeah. I mean, like, and I'm one of the few. You know, again, just as you have have standing to talk about the about Muslim issues because of your background, I'm one of the the few people who are standing to talk about gay marriage because i'm married mm-hmm. to a guy and so i'm one of the few people who is able on the abc to to say hang on i want to live in are we saying that we want to live in a society that is so fragile that people aren't allowed to express the view that i shouldn't be married like, yeah, exactly. I want to yeah. live in a society that is robust enough for, I, for you know, I'm, I'm I, I do a stand. I'm, I'm doing it. a
2: stand-up bit these days, right? Where I'm, I'm still workshopping it to find the funny parts in it. But my basic bit is, you know, the idea that um, straight people shouldn't allow to be ma- married because I'm straight. I've been divorced twice. Like, we're not good at it. We have been it for a long Every Every couple that I know that is loving and has lasted forever is gay. I mm-hmm. I wish I had the strength of a gay couple. Gay couples are way better than straight couples. Straight people have ruined marriage.
0: <laughs> I mean, so there's you know, yes. Yeah, so this this white university educated clique is the is the group of people who are who I regard as being holding the cultural uh, purse strings at the moment. Yes. They are in power in culture, and I think when I say that they're giving rise to the right wing, I think mm-hmm. I do think that that's. That is well founded. I think it's a sense of resentment uh, on the right that they are no longer invited to the cool cocktail parties because every because they're regarded as being as being bigots. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the way that this shows up is if you if you are in the United States and you believe in securing the U.S. border, then you are racist in the eyes of these people. If you believe that, you know. Uh, that women who grew up as girls are different from women who grew up as boys, and that those that they 're not exactly the same thing then you 're transphobic in the eyes of these people. If you believe that saying an acknowledgement of country to recognize traditional ownership of the lands before every speech is facile and infantilizing towards first nations people then you 're racist you 're a colonialist you know and if you believe that gay marriage that marriage shouldn 't be extended to people of the same sex then you're a homophobe. If, if you don't believe in high immigration into Australia, then you're a racist. Like, these are the norms that I'm talking about that are basically accepted by the cultural elite. They filter down through media and public discourse. Mm-hmm. They may not be observed by the barbecue, but... I mean, I'm saying all of this because I think I did a clumsy job of it the last time I was speaking by sounding like I was conflating wokeness with, I don't know, Islamist jihadist Mm -hmm. terrorism or something. Yeah, I I knew you were, right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying that. I guess what I'm saying is that there is a a puritanical worldview that regards blasphemers as being, regards themselves as being righteous for standing up to to blasphemers, Mm -hmm. and That is the same motivation that is that is coming from all of these different cohorts, whether it's Muslims who are offended by uh, blasphemy or whether it's people who hold all of those ideas that I was just talking about being offended by what they regard as being bigotry. Uh, You know, it's a a, willingness to interrogate what the people you're protesting are actually saying.
2: I think there's a degree of extremeness in the Muslim side of this that we're not fully understanding, which is where, which is why those analogies happen, right? Which is, I mean, the mobs that happen in Pakistan and and, and Nigeria and these countries that that genuinely, like your whole villages get burnt down, people get ripped to death, their skin gets ripped off of them, they get beheaded in public, all of these things, it's a, it's a whole other level um and yes it, on paper both things are censorship but i think you know that that's like saying on paper uh, ebola and um, uh, a migraine are both things that affect the human body you know like there, that, there is yeah. more there is more to it than that yes the, the 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 you're absolutely right about the level of influence that you know university educated kind of you know certain elite community has there's um do you know peter turchin have you heard of peter turchin
0: yeah but remind me did, I so don't
2: you would have read the uh, there's been a few articles about him. He came up with a new field of study called Cliodynam Cliodynamical and the idea was basically looking at the at societies throughout history to see if you can come up with predictive elements as to what causes the collapse of a society right and and he kind of predicted for example that 2020 would be a really bad year 2018 would be a bad year 2020 would be worse um you know some many times he's argue, like people have said that he was predicting Donald Trump's presidential campaign and its victory way before anyone else and one of his main hypotheses, which isn't that different, for example, from uh, the French economist who wrote Capital, what's his name? Um, Thomas Piketty. Yeah, yeah, Piketty. Um, isn't that different from Piketty's argument as well? Is that the problem we have right now is we've got this whole university-educated um, elite that are coming out of universities and they don't have anywhere to go. There's no jobs for them that justify the time they spent in universities. There's no expertise. That, there's no practical application to their expertise. And so that frustration that turns inwards and then they just start using it as um, an intellectual weapon against society. And so like, you know, both of these people can kind of argued similar things about the problem there. And for me, the answer there isn't that university students who are leftist and woke are are crazy, because of course they are, they always have been, um, it's that they used to be able to get a job that paid equal to their work that they did in university. That's mm. there. And therein lies the problem. And that's because of labor laws. That's because of union issues. That's because of corporatization and the way corporatization has affected the labor market and those things less so than, you know, the stuff that we've been talking about.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll dial up the influence of material, <laughs> material and uh, and I suppose institutional problems in my uh, in in the the bays of my concerns uh, in the future, Sammy. As in, uh, I'm giving you more things to worry about. is basically yeah, yeah, what yeah, I'm very much. But yeah. how <laughs> uh, you managed to come out more optimistic than I am, even <laughs> you, know, you cite a, a greater calamity uh, that's befalling us, uh, Sammy. I have to go and give my children some dinner. It's uh, nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for for. Being on the show it's a pleasure
2: hey thanks for indulging me yeah you know i appreciate
0: this uncomfortable conversations is produced by stefan Postuma. follow me josh zeps on twitter and instagram for all the latest may your day be fruitful your mind humble your enemies generous and your conversations perfectly sparklingly delectably uncomfortable